New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. Good morning. Well, today we come to the last great acts in the Bible story, to the final judgment and the new creation, Acts 6 and 7 in my diagram. And this sends us, of course, to the very end of the Bible, to Revelation chapters 21 and 22. But as we shall see, there's plenty earlier on in the Bible as well that points us forward to these great future events. Now, I'm sure that we're all very well aware that there are all kinds of weird and wonderful teachings and predictions, uh, always have been, about so-called end times. Now, I don't want to discuss any of those, but simply to try to focus in on what the Bible itself says about the end of its own story, which is really not so much an ending, is it, as a new beginning. And of course, in line with our theme throughout this week, uh, I'll be asking, what does shalom look like when it is fully and finally restored throughout all God's creation when Christ returns? Now, do remember, just as we start, that this all comes as part of John's great vision in the book of Revelation, a vision that is pictorial and symbolic and full of uh, imagination, imagination to enable us to grasp some of the essential truths of what God has in store for us, not to start speculating very literalistically about all the details. Well, here's the first thing. Shalom will mean a new creation. Revelation 21, verse 1, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, for the old order of things had passed away. Now, John, it's important to see here, is not talking about a totally different creation somewhere else, but a totally renewed creation. You notice that last phrase in verse 4 explains the earlier one in verse 1. It's that the old order of things has passed away. So this is not the total obliteration of the whole universe, but it's restoration and renewal to a whole new order of things. That's why God says, I'm making all things new, not I'm making all new things. Did you notice uh, in our text that that phrase, a new heaven and a new earth, are in inverted commas? Well, that's because John is actually quoting from the Old Testament scripture here, from Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 to 25, where God himself had said, see, look, behold, I will create, or literally I am creating, new heavens and a new earth. And then Isaiah goes on to describe that in wonderful pictures of human life in all its abundance and fulfillment, uh, with fruitful work, and satisfying engagement, and family life, and harmony within the community, and also between the nations, and indeed in nature itself. And that's the imagery from Isaiah 65 that John is drawing on here. Now, as we saw right at the very start of our journey, the Bible affirms the goodness of God's creation, Act 1. Now, of course, it also tells us that the ground is cursed because of our sin and our rebellion. But the hope of those Old Testament believers then was not that the earth itself should be destroyed and we should go somewhere else, but that the curse of God would be lifted from the earth. That was one reason why Lamech named his son Noah, meaning comfort, because he said, and you can read it there in Genesis chapter 5, uh, Lamech said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground that the Lord has cursed. Well, 
we shall see that God will indeed answer that prayer of Lamech, but not in his son Noah's lifetime. And then, as we turn to the New Testament, of course, well, we've already seen how Paul exults in God's great plan for all creation. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he says that God's plan is to bring the whole creation into unity, reconciled unity in Christ. And then in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, Paul tells us that the whole universe, all things in heaven and earth, he said, was created by Christ, created for Christ, held together by Christ, and has been reconciled to God through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. And then in Romans chapter 8, Paul links together the destiny of creation with the resurrection of our bodies. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, uh, beginning at verse 19. He says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. That's act two, the biblical story. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope, in the expectation that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Now, can you see there that vital connection that Paul makes between, on the one hand, the resurrection and redemption of our bodies with the rebirth of creation. And it's not just because we're going to need our resurrected bodies that Paul tells us in Philippians will be like Christ's resurrection body. We're going to need them in order to live within the new creation. It's also that this analogy is so helpful. I mean, thinking first of our bodies, there's going to be both discontinuity and continuity between our resurrection bodies in the new creation and these bodies that we now have in this creation. And here's the thing, it's the resurrection body of Jesus that is the vital clue. Because you see, the risen Jesus was clearly not quite the same as he had been before his crucifixion. I mean, he could appear and disappear. It, it seems that he is inhabiting a whole new order of existence, a whole new dimension of being which transcends our physical space and place, and yet can be in our physical place and space because he could be with his disciples and eat fish and so on. And yet equally clearly, although he was different, he was the same Jesus. He was recognizable by his disciples. In fact, they could see the marks of crucifixion there still visibly on his body. No, he says when they were afraid, I'm not a ghost, he said, because that's what they thought at first. But here I am, he said, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you can see I have able to eat food and cook breakfast and so on. And Jesus, we're told, is the first fruits. That's to say the same will be true for us. We will be different and yet we'll be recognizable as the persons we actually are. As Paul puts it, as I said in Philippians, God will transform our lowly bodies to be like his, Christ's, glorious body. So that's what's true for us. And so also it will be then for creation as a whole. It's not just going to be this old earth just sort of spruced up a bit, any more than the risen Jesus was just the earthly Jesus just come back from the dead, as it were. No, there will indeed be transformation and renewal. 
but we will recognize the new creation as our earth, our creation, our home, God's creation, restored, renewed, and resplendent. Now, if, if at this point you're thinking, yeah, but I mean, what about those passages that say the whole universe is going to be destroyed by fire? <laughs> well, wait just a minute. We'll, we'll get there before too long. But that's our first point that I wanted to make, that shalom at the end of the Bible story is not just heaven when you die, but a whole new creation, new heaven, new earth, the city of God. Secondly, shalom will mean God with us. Can you see that there in Revelation 21, verse 3? You know, it's amazing to me how many Christians still imagine that the end of the world is going to mean us flying off up to heaven. And unfortunately, that's a, a picture that draws more from a lot of Christian hymns and songs about us going up to our heavenly home or, uh, or you know, that when Christ shall come and take me home uh, or God who comes to take his servants up to their eternal home, as one of our hymns says. But, you know, that's not how the Bible ends. The Bible does not end with us going anywhere, but with God coming to make his home here. John says that he saw the holy city, the bride of Christ, coming down out of heaven from God. And once again, you see, John is drawing very heavily here on the scriptures of the Old Testament, because the hope of the believers in those days was not that they should leave the earth behind and go up to God somewhere else, but that God would come here and sort things out once and for all. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, cries Isaiah in Isaiah 64 verse 1, and I can hear a kind of voice almost from heaven saying, yeah, Isaiah, don't worry, I intend to. For of course, God did precisely come down in that sense, in the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ. But then Jesus himself and the apostles affirmed that he will come again, and that when he does, God will come to dwell with us permanently, intimately, and forever. Look, look down there at verse 3, you see, three times it speaks of God coming to dwell with his people, placing his tabernacle among them, just as he had done in the wilderness when the word became flesh. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. That is literally with mankind and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. So you see, this is, this is actually the, the ultimate fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy and sign. You remember that Emmanuel means God with us, not us going somewhere else to be with God. That's the great expectation of this passage, God dwelling in our midst with our resurrected bodies with God in the new creation. Now, of course, we have to be careful and, and proper here and point out that when believers die, before Christ returns, before that great event, then we know that they are safe with the Lord. Paul affirms that, doesn't he? In fact, in 1 Corinthians, he describes death as just like falling asleep in Christ. And in Philippians, Paul knows that when he dies, he will be with Christ. And so in that sense, yes, I suppose it is right that we can speak of going to heaven when we die, that is going into the presence of Christ. But heaven after our physical death in this life is not our final destination 
It's sometimes called the intermediate state. The older theologians use those terms. And it is precisely that, the intermediate period between personal death and the return of Christ. It's not the final state. When Christ returns to take up his kingdom and his authority over all the earth and over all creation, then, as John says in Revelation 5, verse 10, we shall reign with him on the earth, not up there somewhere else in heaven. Now, again, somebody may be asking, yeah, but what about the rapture when we all go up to meet Christ in the air? as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. But I'm afraid that's a passage that has been much misunderstood. You see, what Paul is talking about there in 1 Thessalonians 4 is God's arrival in the return of Christ. And in order to help us think about that, he uses two images in that passage. The first is from Mount Sinai and that loud trumpet blast that announced that God was coming down, the presence of God was coming to Mount Sinai to meet with Moses and the people of Israel. So there's nothing secret about that then. And Paul says there's going to be nothing secret about it when God comes. There'll be a vast trumpet blast like Mount Sinai. And Paul's other image that he uses here is of the arrival of a Roman emperor to a city within his dominions. Because when that was, when he was approaching, the people of the city or their leaders, the civic leaders, would go out for a meeting with the emperor outside the city on his way in to greet him and to welcome him into their city. And that's the image that Paul is using in 1 Thessalonians 4, that when Christ is on his way to claim his kingdom, we who are alive at that time, says Paul, we will welcome him, going up, as it were, to meet him and to accompany him as he comes. He doesn't mean that somehow then Jesus is going to turn around and go back up to heaven. No, Jesus is coming to reign, and we rejoice to welcome him into his rightful inheritance. So then, shalom will mean God dwelling with us. Here in the tabernacle or temple, which will be his whole creation. You see, that, that's why John tells us that he didn't see any physical temple in the city of God, because there was no need for one. The whole new heaven and earth have now become God's cosmic temple, his dwelling place. And we shall dwell there with him and he with us. And that will be perfect shalom. So then thirdly, shalom will mean the end of all evil. Luke there, chapter 21, verses 4 and 8 and 22, verse 3 and one or two other places in these chapters. See, when we go right back to the beginning of our Bible story, we know that it was our sin and rebellion that shattered the shalom of creation. And so at this end of the Bible story, we see God destroying all that is evil from his universe altogether and doing that as a necessary precursor to making all things new in the renewed creation. So in terms of our diagram, you see, this is like Act 6 of the great drama, the last but one before the final, the new creation itself. And so it's interesting that before we reach those last two wonderful great chapters of Revelation chapters 21 and 22, we have several chapters, 18, 19, and 20, that portray the fall of Babylon, which means the ending of the idolatrous and oppressive order of evil in our world and all its rapacious rulers, and then the final judgment, in which all the enemies of God, satanic and human, will be defeated and destroyed. 
And all of this, you know, although it's, it's very dark and, and pretty terrible and horrible, it is actually part of the good news. It's part of the gospel, which is why, incidentally, in Revelation 19, the, the final overthrow and destruction of Babylon is greeted with a fourfold resounding hallelujah. Praise God, because it is good news that assures us that evil will not have the last word in God's creation and God's universe, that evildoers who never repent will not get away with it forever. Because tragically, it is going to be the case that those who persist in refusing to obey the living God and continue to do evil without repentance will finally be excluded from God's new creation. There is indeed, as the Apostle Paul would put it, the wrath to come. There is that day of judgment, the, the, the final day of judgment, when God will deal with all wrongs and with all wrongdoers and will ultimately put everything right. In that sense, the day of judgment will be a great and final rectification, putting all things right. And you see, it's in that context that we need to think about that passage in 2 Peter chapter 3 that speaks about the whole creation being, quote, destroyed by fire on that day, the day of the Lord. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare to the view of God. Now, what we need to do here is to take into account the whole context of this whole chapter, 2 Peter 3. Because P Peter here is responding to people who were denying the very idea of a future judgment. You'll see that there in verses 3 and 4. But they're forgetting, says Peter, that God did once judge the earth through water. And he's speaking, of course, of the flood. And he uses the same word there, destroyed. But what was destroyed in the flood was not the whole planet earth, but the sinful human race and culture living on it apart from Noah, of course, and his family. And so, says Peter, God will do it again, judge the earth by fire this time, meaning the purging, cleansing fire of judgment, the destruction of the ungodly, as he says precisely. Here's how Peter makes that comparison, that analogy. He says in verse 6, by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So Peter's language here, destruction by fire, is the image of purging judgment, not total obliteration. Peter's picture in, in our kind of language is not so much some kind of cosmic incinerator in which everything is consumed and nothing is left but ash, but rather of a cosmic smelting furnace in which all the dross is consumed and what is left is pure gold. And that's why, you see, Peter can immediately follow this act of God's fiery judgment with the promise of new creation. There it is, verse 13. In keeping with God's promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So that brings us back then now to our text in Revelation 21 and 22. Because once this cleansing judgment will have taken place, look at all the things that John tells us will be no more. Just 
some go through these two chapters and count up all the number of times he says either no more or no longer or implies it in one way or another because it, it fills us with such hope such anticipation the most obvious is there in verse four no more tears no more death or mourning or crying or pain in verse 25 and again in chapter 22 verse 5 no more night or darkness which of course is the time of crime and violence that would have gone no more evil doers verse 8 and 27 and chapter 22 verse 15 all wickedness and evil doers will have disappeared from the city of god they'll not be there and then chapter 22 verse 2 no more war because there will be the healing of the nations that's the fulfillment of isaiah and some of the psalms that the nations will no longer take up arms against one another there'll be healing isn't that a beautiful picture of real shalom real peace healing for the nations as the tree of life banishes the reign of death and then as a climax in chapter 22 verse 3 and there will be no more curse you see that's what we've been longing for isn't it right throughout this whole long drama of scripture ever since that terrible word of god in genesis 3 cursed is the ground because of you like Lamech, I referred to earlier, the father of Noah in Genesis 5, who was longing for God to lift the curse on the earth to give them comfort and rest. Like Paul, who in Romans 8 portrays the whole creation itself, eagerly longing for its liberation from frustration and bondage and decay, all the marks of the curse, and to be liberated into the freedom, the glorious freedom of the sons of God. And see, that's what John is seeing here in this last great chapter of the Bible. The curse, gone. Creation, reconciled to God. The water of life, the tree of life, bringing abundant fruitfulness, the intimacy of God with us, in the, as it were, as in the Garden of Eden again. And we shall see the very face of God, said John, and reign with him forever. So if those are some of the things that will not be there in the new creation what will be there how does john picture for us some of the wonderful features of the new creation i just wonder what your mental picture of heaven is the trouble is that our minds are in a sense already stuffed with a whole combination of, of images from medieval art you know, with angels and chubby little babies with wings flying around, and saints in long white robes and halos and very serious faces, stained glass window pictures. And then on top of that, there's all the popular caricatures as well, you know, happy saints floating around on clouds with halos and harps and, and God as a kind of old man with a great white beard. But all this weird science fiction kind of spiritual life and existence there we all are in white with harps singing hymns for all eternity i mean it's either funny or pretty horrendous depending on your mood at the time so what does john actually see now let's remember that this whole book is visionary it's it's filled with imagery as i said that is intended to communicate truth but is doing so through imaginative pictorial form, which we're not intended to somehow translate into literalistic reality. John sees a mountain and a city and a bride, all of which, of course, are also Old Testament images for the people of God in union with him. 
But then the city that John sees is somehow also like a garden, or rather like the garden, the Garden of Eden. It seems to be a sort of redeemed combination of the remarkable achievements of human beings, cities, with the gift of God himself, nature, the garden. This kind of world seems to take us back to the beginning, God's own wonderful creation in the Garden of Eden, and yet also includes within it all the accomplishments of history, uh, humanity's great inventive creativity and civilizing power. So this great drama of scripture that we've been looking through all this week, it began in a garden and it ends in a city, but it's a garden city. It's the best of both, as it were. Shalom is both the gift of God, but enriched and glorified also by the redeemed and purified, cleansed accomplishments of human beings as well. And so that brings us, therefore, to my fourth point, which is that shalom will mean the redemption of human civilization. Now, Human beings have built cities ever since the dawn of human civilization. I mean, the very first one in the Bible is attributed to Cain himself. And we build cities, don't we, for several reasons. One reason, obviously, is security. We build cities to keep ourselves safe. Another is to be able to work and trade more conveniently with one another. But we also usually try to make our cities attractive and beautiful with architecture and parks and plenty of living space or at least we do when we take the trouble to plan them sensibly. But what John sees here, you see, is, is the perfection of all these things and even more. The new creation will be in a sense like everything we ever wanted our cities to be, but without the squalor and the crime and the crowding and the violence. And these will be cities that will be perfected by the very presence of God and the beauty of God's creation. And so that is where we'll find our perfect shalom. Look, just look briefly at the imagery that John shares with us to make these points about the new creation. He says it will be the home of all God's people. Can you see there in verse 12 and 14 that it's the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb? So it will be the people of God, Old and New Testament, will be there together in this city of God. Secondly, it will be a place with space for everybody. Uh, the vast dimensions of the city that he sees in verses 15 and 16, approximately 1,500 miles squared and cubed. I mean, let's not try to do literal calculations on that, as I've seen a website actually which does exactly that and says that the city of God is going to be 240 vertical layers, about seven miles each, giving complete atmospheres and room for about 20 billion believers at a, a density of about 41 persons per square mile. <laughs> and I'm saying, John would be laughing his head off. John is simply trying to say to us, look, God's city, God's new creation will be vast and spacious with room for all God's people to be there and to be at home. And then thirdly, it will be stunningly beautiful. Look at all those precious stones and gems and metals and colors that are described in chapter 21, verses 18 to 21. And again, I don't think we're meant to take these literally, but they combine together to dazzle us with gorgeous beauty. Fourthly, the city of God will be totally secure. You see those vast, thick walls? 
in verse 12 and 17, but the gates are open because in any case, there'll be no thieves or robbers or enemies to attack, so it'll be total safety. And then fifthly, it's a city that will be filled with life and abundance and fruitfulness. Those first two verses of chapter 22, the water of life and the tree of life and the constant fruitfulness of this city. And then sixthly, it'll be a place of work and service. John says, we shall serve him in verse three and we shall reign in verse five. And those, remember, those were our creation mandates. We were created in the image of God to rule and to serve within God's creation. And that's also what John heard back in Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, where he said that we shall be kings and priests, reigning and serving within the creation, within the, the new heavens and the new earth. So this new creation is not going to be some kind of unending vacation. It will be the joy of eternally satisfying work and rest in the presence of God. And that leads to my last and in many ways, to me, the most exciting point, seventhly, which is that the new creation, the city of God, will include the glory of human civilizations. Look at these amazing verses, chapter 21, verses 23 to 27. John said, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And no day will its gates ever be shut, for there'll be no nighttime there. And the glory, same word, and honor of the nations will be brought into it. And nothing impure will ever enter it. Nothing who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, who are these kings of the earth and these nations? Well, all through the book of Revelation up to this point, these have been the bad guys. They are the enemies of God, the enemies of God's people. They, they're in rebellion and violence and bloodshed and war and satanic deception. But now, in chapter 21, in this startling reversal, this turning upside down of the whole book in the new creation, the kings of the earth and the nations of the world, they submit to God and they walk in God's ways. They're walking in God's light, the light of the Lamb of God himself. So this is the transformation of the old order of things, of human rebellion, into the new order of the city of God for all nations, as God had promised to Abraham. But what we also need to see here is that the most prominent feature of these nations and kings earlier in the book of Revelation is precisely their economic activity. You look back to Revelation chapter 18, and it describes the whole system of world trade. The products of human work and skill and craftsmanship, ships, cargoes, animals, fabrics, goods, and so on. But it's all in this fallen world. It's all in rebellion against God. All these things which are good in themselves because they're part of God's good creation and of human work, they're being corrupted and perverted for greed and oppression, luxury for some, poverty for others. And they're all there to serve Babylon this great prostitute, as this city is called, the portrait of the city of man rather than the city of God, arrogant, lustful, destructive, violent. But, says chapter 18 and 19, Babylon will fall. Hallelujah. 
surprise the whole world in Revelation chapter 19. The old order of sin and corruption and death will be destroyed forever. And that's the good news of Revelation 18 and 19. And then, says chapter 21, then all the product of human nations and empires and kings, all the splendid achievement of trade and art and business and architecture, music and engineering and all that, all that makes human life so wonderful because we were made in the image of God will be purified, cleansed of all evil and deception and lust and greed and perversion, and it will all be put to its proper use, which is to glorify God and to adore and to bless the redeemed humanity. All the accomplishments of human civilization will be there in the city of God, redeemed, purged, restored, no longer being perverted into the city of Babylon in chapter 18. You notice how verse, 20, verse 23 speaks of the glory of God and verse 26 speaks of the glory of the nations. This is God's glory and human glory, but no longer in competition in which our glory is somehow fighting against God's. No, no. Now what we have here is this wonderful, glorious combination in which all the glory of what it means to be human is now also being offered into the city of God to enhance all that is of the glory of God. See, that's what these verses look forward to. And if you say to me, how is this going to happen? I, I don't know. We can't even begin to imagine how God will accomplish this. But it encourages us, doesn't it, to live our daily lives and work. And to know that somehow nothing is ever wasted. Nothing's too small, too insignificant. The God who can redeem and resurrect our humble, broken bodies the God who has already, through the cross of Christ, reconciled the whole creation to himself. And the God who will make all things new as the old order of things passes away. This same God will redeem and purify our humble work and will have it contribute in some way into the glory of the city of God. And show our, our shalom now lies in knowing that we can live now in the light of that wonderful prospect to come. So you see, that's why Jesus, although he would warn us that in this world, he said, you will have trouble. Yes, of course we do. But don't be afraid, he said, because I have overcome the world. And then he assures us, says Jesus, my peace, my shalom, I give to you. So let me finish then simply with three wonderful prayers of the Apostle Paul, each of which looks forward to that day and, and uses this language of shalom and peace for our comfort and our blessing. So the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way, and the Lord be with you all. And may God himself the God of peace, sanctify you through and through, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, because the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk. 